Miller. On the third episode of Tiger Turf Talk, we hosted Chad Price of Carolina Green Sod Farm based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. When you're talking about turf grass management, Chad Price is synonymous with one of the best in the industry. In the podcast, we discuss different aspects of his sod farm, we discuss the evolution of his sod farm and how it became a more specialty-based turf grass sod farm pointed more towards the athletic fields of professional sports where his other side of his company was his field construction base. He discusses the different aspects of going to a job site, the different aspects outside of the turf industry that require much more specialized labor with pouring concrete, moving electrical work, understanding the different aspects to create a construction company that is tailor-made to sports turf management and constructing a field at a professional level. Chad shared with the kids the different stadiums that he's worked in, how far he's had to travel with certain sod. Uh, he explained the process from pulling the sod up on the sod farm in the early morning to ensure the cool weather so there was no anaerobic activity during the travel, having heat in the sod. And then when you arrive on the site and discussing how to properly lay it to ensure that the field is ready to play the next day. I send a huge shout out to Chad for coming on and teaching the kids about what it takes to run a sod farm and a field construction company. I'm so grateful for your time. This is such a great podcast with great content. We hope you all enjoyed this episode of Tiger Turf Talk. Welcome to the third episode of Tiger Turf Talk. I'm your host, Drew Miller, with your co-host, Ryland Harris. Today, we have a very special guest, Chad Price, owner and operator of Carolina Green Sod Farm and Field Construction. Uh, how are you doing today, Chad? Hey, great. Great, Drew. Thanks for having me. Of course. We want to thank you for coming on. Um, we want to sort of start off, uh, I remember very... Uh, vividly of my time when I went down with my turf class down to uh, Charlotte and saw the farm and everything and just how immense was it was and how amazing the whole operation was based off of the fields that you had and where they were going. Um, I just wanted to sort of start off by asking where your turf grass in, uh, journey started and how you sort of be, got to the point of owning a sod farm that has such an impact on the industry as a whole. Well, um, I, I I grew up outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. That's where I live still uh, on a family farm. Uh, we we uh, raised uh, row crops, you know, corn, soybeans, small grain. Uh, my dad ran a seed cleaner, uh, you, you know, cleaning seed for the farmers, and uh, also a poultry operation, a turkey farm. So there's lots of farming going on out there. Uh, I went to Virginia Tech thinking that I would. Uh, I would go back and run the farm and this was forever ago. This was like in the 1980s. So, uh, you know, think about that time that was, uh, through the seventies and eighties, a lot of inflation, uh, farm farming, uh, was based a lot on subsidies and, and, and maybe that's still the case, but you know, farming was basically down during those times, uh, agricultural farming. So, uh, we also built sprayers, uh, my uncle had a sprayer manufacturer business that did quite well. So when I got out of college, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. Um, and, and I ended up working with, uh, on the farm and working with the sprayer business sort of hand in hand. I started spraying lawns like a small lawn care company on the weekends, like, you know, like a miniature uh, true green or whatever. And I built that to maybe three or four, 300 and some, not quite 400 customers. And I started spraying athletic fields as part of that. And, and I sort of realized there was no one really to build or, or, to, or renovate athletic fields. You know, there really wasn't, uh, I guess you would, you wouldn't consider that a, a, a career option back in those days. It was done by combination of whom, whomever grading contractors, maybe sod farms, maybe landscape companies, you know, they're really wanting a specialty in sports turf and really even like in sports turf management. I mean, we talk about that today, like, you know, oh, that's a career choice and it certainly is. But back then, you know, there, you, you sort of, if you were, if you were studying turf grass, you were probably either going into a sod farm or more than 
more than not, uh, more likely than not, going to the golf course. So, um, you know, for sports turf managers, it was just, I don't even know that that was even a phrase back then, you know. But anyway, I sort of saw a niche and having that farming background and uh, just, you know, the equipment background, uh, started started building athletic fields. And, you know, we didn't know everything about how to do it. Laser graders was just were just being invented back then. And this is like in the 1990s. And so we, we sort of tried to get on the front edge of, of technology as far as laser grading and drainage systems and things like that. I really didn't study turf at Virginia Tech. I studied crops. At that at that time, uh, there was a there were four options: crops, uh, soil science, turf grass science, and environmental. And I think it's broken out similar now. There may be different words to describe that, but it's sort of a similar pathway. Yeah, they've they've actually split it into schools now. So there's a plant science school where the turf and the crops have gone one way and the soils has gone the other. So yes. It's, it's uh, you know, my background was ag chem and a, a lot of uh, pest management, uh, entomology, things like that. I really didn't know much about grass, you know, other than what you learned in a, a plant physiology classes and things like that. So I had a lot of learning to do. And I must say, this was actually before the internet, if you can even believe there was a time before the internet. So when you, when you would learn about things, you know, you were studying books, you were, um, you were looking at, you were ordering books and, and, you know, it, it, you couldn't Google anything. It, and so, um, just meeting people, meeting people in the industry and, and the sports surf managers association was a really important group to get hooked in with. Um, I think I went to my first STMA conference in 1995, less than a hundred people there. And we met people from all over the country sort of trying to do this thing as well. So that really allowed me to grow. I think a lot in the, in the, in the trade and in the industry and the craft. And so the sod farm came along later, about 10 years later, um, in a, maybe around 2005, we, we um, started our first sod farms. And that was mainly to try to produce quality sand-based sod that we would thereby use on our sand-based athletic fields. So, you know, the majority of our business with Carolina Green is building athletic fields. That's probably 75% of our work. And then the other, the other uh, 25% has to do with specialty sod and sod production. So it was athletic field construction that really got us in the sod business. So what type of machinery do you use to create these sod farms and things? Um, uh, some of it is agricultural type machinery, like, you know, the big farm tractors you would see, you know, in the soybean and cornfields. Um, but the, uh, and that would be for plowing and disking and prepping the land initially. Everything we grow is Bermuda grass. So once you plant Bermuda grass the first time, it typically will grow back on its own. You don't have to replant it like you do with fescue and bluegrass. So the, the fescue and bluegrass farmers, they're, they're more constantly every year, every time they turn over a crop, they, they plow and cultivate and do things like that. We don't really have to do that. So once we prep it the first time, we're pretty much good to go. So, but there are some, some ag piece of equipment like that, but uh, once, once that, once it's established, then we're operating typically with smaller pieces of equipment like, you know, under 100 horsepower tractors to run the, the harvesters, to run the mowers. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the equipment is tractor driven. Some of the equipment is self-contained like, like some of the bigger mowers, you know, it's just a mower in itself with its own engine. But most of the things are actually pulled behind tractors, you know, so the tractors is a big part of it. So to the, uh, for the day-to-day -day work on the farm, uh, do you have any sort of schedule based off that? Or is it just sort of you have certain fields you got to take care of, uh, many mowing schedules, spray programs, anything like that that you can sort of speak to the kids about? Uh, yes, and, and I think we're in a 
pretty unique situation. You know, we have about 70 employees in the company as far as people out in the field. We have about 10 people in the office. And, and of those 10 people, uh, most of them are part-time. You know, they work, you know, four or five, six hours a day. Um, and, uh, and, and ironically, some of them are the spouses of the people who are out in the field, you know, so we're, we're very inbred, you know, a bunch of families work there, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's always a fun dynamic, but, um, you know, when we, we have all these crews going out building fields. And so when we have a big sod order, um, or something like that, I can steal people from the crews to come supplement the guys at the farm. And so that is a huge advantage because some days on the farm, we need 10 or even 20 people. And some days we only need two or three. And so in a normal situation, it's hard to employ, you know, where do you find that happy medium? We're able to sort of find that happy medium by, you know, taking people from our construction side and stealing them for a few days or a week to help with the, uh, the, the sod production. Um, you know, we've gone through cycles where we sell sod continually to, um, you know, home builder or not, not to the uh, exact home builder, but, but to a landscape company who is sodding and, and installing the, the landscape like for track homes. And they may do four or five homes a day, you know, small little yards, but still it's five or six loads of sod every day. And they'll just sort of that every day. And so that's a great schedule. You know, you can say, all right, I need to deliver five loads every day. And, and that's nice and scheduled, easy to schedule. Um, we've gotten more out of that business and more into the specialty grown sod. And, and so some days we may go several weeks without selling any sod. And then all of a sudden we have to send out, you know, two ball fields on one day. So it's, it's gotten a little more crazy, but we found that uh, crazy as far as scheduling people, but we found that, you know, we can get paid more for those, uh, specialty grown specialty, um, any type of specialty sod would just get more for it. And so again, trying to find that balance, I honestly can't tell you which is better. It seemed like it was easier when we were just selling sod every day to commercial land, commercial turf is what we call it. Um, rather than, than, you know, like today, for instance, the last three days we've been sending sod to Jacksonville for a baseball stadium. Well, you know, that's great. And we charge a premium for it because they want it mowed a certain way and cared for a certain way. But they're so picky with every little piece of grass, you know, that you, you, there's always a challenge, you know. So, um, but, but, but scheduling probably is the biggest challenge. And I think for a lot of farms, it wouldn't work that way because, uh, you know, what you want is consistent labor, consistent schedule. And that's not really what we have here, but we're able to make up the difference by having construction crews that can help fill in the, the voids where we, uh, you know, are short on staff. Um, one thing I'll mention about, and you saw this, Drew, when you were down there, you know, we grow a lot of sod for the NFL on plastic, a thick, really thick grass called game on grass. Um, and, and you grow it on plastic, it becomes root bound. And it's just really hard to tear apart. It's also very heavy. It's like an inch and a half thick and weighs like 17 pounds per square foot. And that's the grass that you see when they put down and you can play on it immediately. Uh, and so that's a big part of what we do. There again, that's not going out every day, not even every week. But when it does go out, they'll want a lot of it in a very short period of time. And it's usually over a weekend or on Thanksgiving Day or some crazy schedule that you really don't want to have to meet but that's when they got to have it so so we our people are are pretty tolerant knowing that hey if, if it's during football season there's no telling what kind of crazy stuff we we may be asked to do for sure uh and i know when i was in pittsburgh there was a full field reside after the state championship games at thanksgiving for the playoffs so completely understand what you're saying there um as you said, you're sort of going towards a specialty-based uh, sod. What is sort of like the schedule, like planning-wise ahead for people who are going to have those orders? And how often do you get to work with those sports turf managers? 
Um, again, my former boss used to fly out to the sod farm up in Tuckahoe for the Kentucky bluegrass. Um, how often do they actually get to have a say in what you're doing management wise? Obviously you said that they do have somewhat of a say and that's how you charge them based off that information. Um, is it just uh, every year somebody has a plan to have at least one field installed and you're going to have that field ready and prepared for the entire year? Or is it again, sort of just crazy kind of like throw it at you. You have to have the fields ready no matter what. Well, there's been a, uh, there's sort of been a progression over time to where we are now. You know, when we first started, you know, we were only producing maybe three or four fields at most a year. And so, you know, it was pretty much first come first serve and, and, we we pretty it was a seller's market you know we we would sell out really quickly so the the nfl teams were really competing for our space competing for our time and and you know uh there's there have been a few other people that have gotten into it over the last we've been doing it about 11 almost 12 years now and uh there have been a, a couple other companies gotten into it and trying to do it and some with varying degrees of success. Some are successful, some are not. It's a hard thing to do. Uh, and it's, and they ask you to do some hard, difficult schedules, you know, like say, who wants to work on Thanksgiving or Christmas Eve? And sometimes we're asked to do those things, but, um, we, we sort of in a pattern right now where early in the year, usually in March or April, when they get their schedules out, they will order grass. And they will put down a deposit on that grass and, it, and it's a non-refundable deposit and we will hold that grass for them for a certain time period it's usually that that calendar year or through january or something and and as the year goes through if they find that they need more grass than what they reserve then then we just try to accommodate if we can there's no guarantee if they also find that they maybe they don't make the playoffs and, and this happens all the time. You know, one team makes it, another team doesn't. And so then that team may release their grass so I can sell it to someone else. And, you know, for every team that loses, there's usually another one that, that won. And, oh, guess what? Now they need the grass. So there's a lot of trading that goes on in the late season, like December, you know, when the playoff season sort of starts to take shape. And, uh and, you know, for that reason, we also started another farm down in Texas uh, to, to try to help us get grass to the Midwest a little e easier, more easily. And I don't know, that that's proven hard to manage because we're not there all the time. But I do have a manager who lives there all the time. But, you know, it's just difficult to service people out there um, when, when you don't have a full crew ready to go at, at a moment's notice. Um, but most of the grass is contract grown. The, the deal's done in uh, in the early spring, and it is basically for that year. And as you, if there again, if you need more grass, great. If you don't, free it up, and someone else will gladly take it, kind of thing. Um, so you sort of spoke to it, um, and this, I mean, this is an industry changing uh, thing with the game on grass. Um, again, it's grown on plastic and you said it, it what's amazing about it to me is that it's literally like the day after you can get on 24 hours after and play a full nfl football game perfect footing and everything like that um where did the idea come from and sort of how how did it become such a big deal when it comes to sports turf managers in the industry well I got the idea uh, because I stole it from someone else, you know, which is always the best way. <laughs> Sounds you know? like fast money, you know? <laughs> um, so the idea that there is actually a patent on this and uh, I think the patent has expired, but weirdly enough, the patent was for growing blue, uh, excuse me, growing bent grass on sand a very thin layer of sand for use in replacing golf greens. So really not the same application, a similar application, but not the same, you know, not nothing like to play football on, but that was the patent that was filed. I, don't, I can't even remember the details of it now, but back in the nineties, I believe. And so that has since expired, I believe. And 
we we didn't we thought about trying to patent our process but there's so, so many loopholes and lawyers and things that you have to go through and then all someone has to do is basically just sort of change something and and they can patent it as well so we we, we what we tried to do is trade what we did is we trademarked our product game on grass and the idea being that you know game on grass is game on grass you know this it's different than sod grown on plastic and so we have a special recipe a special process you know special sand gradation and things like that that we know that will drain but also provide stability and then just the, just the management of it some days sometimes it's not like there's anything super special about it although there are some key components but it's just doing the work you know if you if you work hard and stay on top of the product it'll be a good product if you you know take a holiday or whatever sometimes things can, can go south but um you know that that market the the reason we got into it the way we got into it is we were doing uh, a sod replacement for a, actually at university of virginia after a concert in the middle of football season it was in october I can't remember whether it was U2 or the Rolling Stones. It was one of those two groups. I think it was they U2. They were playing there. U2. They're play- yeah, because they had that big stage. I remember that stage now. Massive. So they were having a big concert in, uh, in, right in the middle of football season. And so Jesse Pritchard, the sports surf manager there, is like, hey, we got to do something. We do all the work at UVA, have for a long time. And so we there was a company doing this down in Alabama, and they had done a few Super Bowls and a few high-profile jobs. They didn't have enough grass. And so we started talking and like, hey, do you think we could do this? Jesse asked me that question. I said, yeah, I think we can do it. But, you know, let's – anyway, so we started down that road and we tried it. And and after we got a, about a month into it, then the Philadelphia Eagles caught wind of it. And they came to us and said, hey, can you grow us a field? So we planted more. And then it just – took off from there you know and um by again by having a uh by having a sorry drew did i lose it um i gotta plug my phone in by having a uh, uh a uh you know the contacts and in, in the with the uh sports service industry you know and, and already having sort of a track record of building fields it sort of opened the door to these other other places, other venues. So that's sort of how we got into the game on grass aspect of things. Um, is there anything like really specific? I mean, if you can share that is with the special recipe and everything, is there any major things that you can't do to the game on grass that you usually do to your sand based sod uh, that you can sort of discuss? Well, the um, I, I would say this, and I'll try to try to address your question, but in not such a roundabout way, but one thing that's very important to production of game on grass is that we start with a, a sand based product. And that's what we we found first. Before we even thought about growing game on grass, we were we were looking for a place, a, a soil type that was all sand. And that's sort of hard that's really hard to find. You know, if you think about where in Virginia or where in North Carolina, there are a few places, but not not many and, and so we found a really sandy spot in the edge of south carolina naturally occurring sand that almost exactly matched the usga profile nothing would grow there not like there was a little bit of cactus and some scrubby pine trees it was basically like a big sand dune 100 200 acre sand dune and uh so we're like you know on it um the uh Sorry, the uh, I'm still there. Yep. Um, oh, the uh, the farmers didn't want it, um, so we we ended up with that uh, sand base profile, and so that's key to the game on grass. And then we uh, just tried to mimic that same sand, and and when we top dress the sod on plastic. You, basically the process for growing gram on grass you put down plastic you have irrigation underneath that just like you would in a big soccer field 
and you, you put down the sand base saw, then you top dress it with sand to build it up slowly over time. And so the sand that you add to it is very critical. You know, all that has to match. And then when you take it and put it on a, you know, Raven Stadium or, or FedEx Field or, or, you know, wherever, we send it to the Kansas City Chiefs, Dolphins, Jaguars, Panthers, you know, so um, Eagles. So when you put it on these sand-based profiles, it all has to drain vertically. It has to somewhat match their profile. And and so you, it's nice to have it root in over time, but it's really not a requirement. And so back to your initial question, I think is like, well, what things do we do that's different or how do you, can you, do you have to treat it differently or whatever? Sometimes it's a challenge to get game on grass or any sod grown on plastic to want to root down into the existing field, the existing soil profile, because it's been growing in that inch and a half or two inches of its own layer. It's a thick mat. It really doesn't want to go anywhere else. It's happy there. And so fortunately it's heavy enough and thick enough and it's in these big wide rolls where it, you, it doesn't have to root down to be stable. But if you can get it to root down, you know, that, that just helps over time. So we encourage people when they put it down to either, you know, solid tie it or bayonet tie it or air fight somehow to poke a hole through that layer, through that inch and a half to sort of encourage the roots to grow down. And it's pretty cool to see that happen. You know, you really see how the plant responds when you stick a, a blade into it and then the roots just, you know, go through that, that, uh, that hole that you punched and like crazy and root into the surface. So that's probably the biggest thing I see, you know, as much as anything about a management tool that you would use after you put the stuff down. Awesome. Um, so when I was down there, I, again, there were the different parts of the company. Uh, there was a part, and I'm curious if you guys are still working, uh, that works on local fields in Charlotte. Um, and if you could sort of speak to the different things that you do around there, if it's still part of the business. Was that, was it, was that on a, man, a, man, a maintenance side or was that the hybrid grass we were working on? Do you remember, do you recall? Maintenance, or? I believe, like um, local ball fields in Charlotte, you know? I believe. It oh was. yeah, yeah. So we have, um, I, we actually call it a maintenance division, and and there's um, you know, an agronomist. He's about ready to retire, so all you young professionals there looking for work, you need to call me. I got jobs for everybody. Um, but but this guy was a, uh, is a uh, handles the maintenance side of our uh, company. And uh, there's probably about 150 schools that we take care of in some capacity. Um, and and that, that starts more locally, right? Because if we're going to fertilize a ball field, we're probably not going to travel to, you know, Northern Virginia six hours to do that. Oh, come to, on. To put down a $300 application. <laughs> I mean, we would, and sometimes we have to. But, you know, we with wouldn't the maintenance make side, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, a smaller scopes of work but you're there often and we'll provide maintenance programs i mean we even do real mowing for some of these clients locally um, but that's a really good part of our business and that's really where things started you know so if you're looking at well how do i get into this and how do i want to run a business and wh what can i do you know starting in the maintenance side is usually where it happens you know whether that's landscape or 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 uh athletic fields or golf or, or whatever, you know, you get in and you, um, you're starting to take care of the grass. You can, you know, it takes a lot of equipment to do what we do. Um, but again, a good way to start is with the, with the maintenance cycles, it's a little less equipment, you know, and then slowly you just keep building it. It probably took me, I know it took me five years of being in business before we ever posted a profit. And, and my wife, had a really good job and she was making money and she was paying all the bills and every dollar that I made went right back into the company. And that was a very blessed situation for me to be in. Um, after 10 years, she actually quit her job and came to, to work with Carolina Green. So now we work together. She's actually my boss. 
Um, she makes more money than I do. And that's seems like the right setup. Awesome. Seems like the right setup. Yeah, and and we're a, a, a women-owned business, you know, technically, and sometimes that helps. But she does run the company, and I run the. I'm the dirt. I tell people I'm the dirt guy. You know, I run the grass and dirt part of it. She runs the financial part of it. And I'll tell you, that's really where I was lacking. You know, another piece of advice I would throw out there is you got to have some business sense and you got to have some business training. And I didn't have that. You know, I think that one thing I see now more so with um, some of the programs that are out there is they do have some business, you know, in finance, at least in some capacity in what you're doing. Um, the agronomic part of it, you can learn. There's so many tools out there. Um, there's so many people and, and ways and, and with just the information that we have access to, you can learn the agronomic side of it. The business side of it um, is more of a challenge. And so thank goodness, you know, I actually married a great business partner and she has taken us, taken this company to heights that we wouldn't have achieved otherwise. Bonding, insurance, loans, banks, uh, you know, all these things, contracts, signing, you know, the legalities of contracts. So we really have a lot of things that we're, um, that she takes care of that, you know, are a little bit out of my league, so to speak. So moving towards the um, field construction aspect of it, um, if you could sort of speak to sort of what the process is uh, after you've had the contract come up, uh, a certain weekend and sort of renovate the entire field. Uh, sort of like what kind of staff comes along? Uh, how long does the process usually take? Is there a specific way of going about doing it? Because um, it, it truly is a, a, an amazing process. And I was lucky enough to have that uh, experience up in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's completely different than managing a ball field. And it's just really cool to see all the aspects sort of come together at the end and have a field that you get to manage. So if you could sort of just talk about like the process where it comes to that point from the sod farm up to the field. Um, well, the, uh, you know, there's a lot of planning, of course, that goes into that. goes on for a couple of years before they even break ground on the site. Um, you know, there are designers out there who specialize in athletic field design. There are not that many of them. They're scattered around the country. But, uh, you know, a lot of times we're consulting with them, even on the front side, about how things will be done. We actually do a lot of the, the design ourselves. Carolina Green, we're a design-build firm, and like all the work we do at University of Virginia, we design that work as well. So because we just know the specialty part of that trade. But, um, you know, once you get a job and you've, you've secured it, whether that's through public bid or through negotiated um, uh, contracts, uh, you know, there's a permitting process and we're dealing with water quality and water quantity and erosion control and those type things. So, you know, in order to in order to do these jobs from a construction standpoint, you really have to be a general contractor. That's someone I something I didn't know and I had to go get my general contractor's license and I promise you you wouldn't want me building your house, but apparently I can build a I got a license I could if you'd let me, but I'd probably screw it up. But you know, you you, you have to be a, a licensed contractor. Then you have to be a licensed land disturber. That's a lot easier thing. You can do that online in the state of Virginia. Uh, they call them um, RLDs, registered land disturber. You know, and any of you guys can do that. Um, pay the 15 bucks and take the class. But that that um, brings to your attention a lot of the components of dealing with erosion control and how to maintain a construction site properly from an erosion control standpoint and water, water quality standpoint. You know, and all this is I, before we really do anything, you know, and then then um, there's also a process of securing the materials and having everything spec'd out and the right sand and the right sod and the right, you know, irrigation valves and irrigation components. There's a lot of submittals we have to put into the architect and the, the engineers to get their approval on. 
So, you know, it's not uncommon for that to take, you know, a couple months once we get to go ahead to do the job before we're really actually able to put a shovel in the ground, you know, and that's what everyone's waiting on. Um, from that point, you know, that's when it really gets fun for me is, is building the job. Um, we, we stay out of town a lot, you know, most, most of the time we're home on the weekends, but we're living in hotels and eating, you know, out in restaurants and things like that, away from home, away from families. For some people, especially younger people, it's great. You know, you don't spend any money. You're living off the company, you know, for all your food and your hotels and everything. Um, but, you know, that's the challenge as you get older and say you have a family, you know, you really cut out for that lifestyle. Um, but that's sort of what we do because we're working out in a pretty wide area. Um, those projects typically take, you know, anywhere where from two to four months. And so, you know, you're, you're in there working alongside other, other people, you know, if they're building, putting up the lights or building a field house or, you know, doing the parking lot or whatever, you're working along with other contractors and, and you sort of learn their trade in the process. And sometimes that can take you down different roads. You know, you may find that, Hey, I really like the construction side of things and moving to a project manager or something like that. But um, we definitely are exposed to a lot of the different trades and crafts, concrete, steel, electrical, HVAC, you know, all the other trades we see in these jobs that we work on. Um, that's awesome. Uh, so I know that I found this very interesting. I'm curious if you guys do the same thing. Um, for transport of the sod itself uh because a trip from north carolina say up to philadelphia you said you installed up in philly uh what is it that you do specifically to ensure the health of the grass for that transport and what type of machines are you using and do you own the machines or are they rented out just sort of how does it impact your business in that way we we own all the equipment you know we have to have multiple pieces of equipment to you know a lot of times when we're harvesting this grass we may be asked to put you know 25 or 30 trucks on the road in in, in a 24-hour period and so we're running two machines and you need backup machines so we usually have you know double or triple or even quadruple you know redundancy in a lot of these machines because if something breaks down, you can't, you can't stop. You just got to go to the next one and, and get back at it. Um, as far as the harvest goes, logistics is a nightmare. It's, it's one of the hardest things we do. Um, we want to harvest the grass when it's cool and, and doesn't have a lot of heat built up in it because when you roll the grass up, it immediately starts a, a solid composting type process, you know, an anaerobic process by which it's, breaking down and turning yellow and 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 so you know if it's really hot like in the middle of summertime and we're sending it to new york or miami or you know we sent it to boston for some of the soccer overlays and to kansas city and other places like that to texas a&m you know 20 hours away they can legally only drive 11 hours and then they got to take a 10-hour break and then they can drive 10 hours again so, you know, that's a big challenge. Uh, the trucking laws are pretty tough, and rightfully so. I mean, we want to be safe on the highways. And so getting truck drivers that understand the, the, how critical this delivery schedule is, uh, harvesting at the right time so there's less heat in the rolls, so there's the sod's better when it arrives. Um, sometimes we have to start harvest sod at 2 in the morning. And if that's what we have to do, then that's what we do. Um, but sometimes we put it in refrigerated trucks, you know, and that helps some. It, it doesn't help. It's not like night and day, but it helps some. Sometimes at the wintertime, you know, we sent sod to Kansas City for the playoffs this year, and it was like two degrees. So we had to put it in refrigerated trucks, but they're not, the refrigerator's not turned on, the heater's turned on. Just so when the sod gets there, it's not frozen. We've had that happen before. You know, the sod shows up and it's frozen to the deck of the trailer and um that's not good so um you know the logistics of hauling the grass at the times we're asked to haul it is pretty crazy sometimes and um and that's 
that's something that, you know, we just had to figure out a way to get better at every job. And, and I think, I think if you can deliver something like that, then it usually, uh, it usually, that, that's how we get a lot of the work we do by doing some crazy, meeting some crazy delivery schedules and things like that and trying to provide, you know, the best quality product. Uh, which is unbelievable. And I remember listening and hearing about it from the guys at Tucko and obviously when we were down there, I mean, what you guys do is just, I mean, I see it as impossible, but it's insane how much you guys do. And I know it's life changing for guys at the level that can afford it. Um, was there ever a job that you really like truly like remember? Maybe it was not your favorite, but it was something that the weather had an impact that really was maybe something insane to actually get the job done in order for a crazy deadline where the weather wasn't supposed to be there and it happened for some reason. Was there ever a job that re you really remember every moment of, you know, if that makes sense? Well, there was actually a job that lasted for two years that comes to mind. Um, and it was, uh, it was actually two years ago when it started, three years ago when it started. It was the U University of North Carolina. And, of course, now University, you know, the North Carolina Tar Heels, they, they, um, they, they uh, have a natural grass field and we rebuilt that and, um, you know, back about five years ago. Well, they were, they were doing a huge project where they were re re rebuilding all their practice facilities. So there was going to be a year where they wouldn't have any football practice fields. And so they – they decided, you know, let's put in synthetic turf for one year and so that we can practice on it and play on it and not tear it up. And their, their field manager there said, wait a minute, um, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's over a million dollars for one year. We can put game on grass in for less than half that cost or even a third of that cost and, and still play on natural grass because they wanted to play on natural grass. That, you know, they feel it's safer and, and, and all that. So we started, you know, our challenge was to replace the grass on a Wednesday night overnight before they had their final walkthrough Thursday and then a game on Saturday. So we were asked to basically replace the field in a 12-hour period in the middle of the night. And we were potentially prepared to do that for all seven home games. We ended up only doing it three times excuse me, because the grass held up better than what they had, you know, worst it wasn't worst case scenario, it's best case scenario. So, but we had some challenging nights where we would, you know, you just work all night and then do the next morning, both at the farm and at the field, ripping it out, replacing it. We have a couple of videos on that. I don't know, maybe on our YouTube channel or something, you can see some of that going on. I know there's something too, uh, a short one, Drew about game on grass. It may be interesting to show everybody like what the process is like, you know, harvesting and installing it. Um, Y'all may look at that sometime. The uh, Casey Carrick, the field manager at uh, UNC, I think has a video on the process they're talking about. Yeah, we're actually that was, on the podcast too. So we're going to talk. Oh about yeah. Yeah. That'll together. be great. He can talk about that. What was weird about that is we did it for the first year and we're like, all right, cool. That's, that was fun. Why do that again? That's great. But then the next year, the fields still weren't ready. So we had to do it the second year, but we weren't as prepared because they didn't, they didn't think they needed it. So we didn't have enough grass and we started scrambling, you know, to make it happen. And then they got a new coach the following year and he decided he wanted synthetic turf. So they could, put synthetic in anyway. I could not all that, all that believe it. I was, when I heard that was happening, yeah. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Do you even know what yeah. just what happened the last two years? Like to make sure that this didn't happen. Yeah. But um, sort of diving into that, uh, do you do uh, at artificial installs? For we do actually. So I have to be careful what I say because you know you don't bite the hand that feeds you. But and we do both. And the reason is, you know, if a client, any client. We, we need to serve their needs and, and there is a place for synthetic turf. Um, you know, there are places that you just can't grow, you know, grass to, you know, to, to make it work and, and you have too much play. 
there's some schools and colleges that maybe only have one field, you know, and they got to do everything on that field. So synthetic is probably a better option for them. Um, but I think it's no secret in, in the science is, you know, slowly coming around to show us that natural grass, quality natural grass is a safer surface to play on than synthetic. The synthetic turf companies have some work to do to, to create a safer surface. And, um, so, Even you know, that's sort of where we are. There's yeah, I mean, that, that field. Yeah, the Meadowlands there. And so, you know, the, the 49ers lost four. The, the uh, Jets also lost two, I think. Yep. And then, the, you know, and that, his MCL. Sport, yeah. So. And so now the Niners, I think, are practicing in uh, Greenbrier. And they got to play the Giants there this coming week. Apparently they're thinking so about boycotting. They're back to well. back. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is right now they could go play that game at your high school field because there's no fans there. All they need is room for TV cameras and, and their sideline personnel. But, um, you know, I'm sure they won't do that, but that that's the reality of it. But uh, I think that, you know, all those things are good for grass. At the end of the day, you know, we need to get our industry, our sports surf industry in a position where they're paying people, you know, more than, than what we have now. Uh, and, and, and I know at the highest level, the pay is good, but there's a lot of, just like in golf, there's a lot of entry and middle level that, you know, is challenging as far as pay and compensation. And so, you know, just bringing people's attention to the fact that, you know, there, there is such a skill set involved in maintaining these fields and how valuable that is to, you know, not only the safety of people, but the, the bottom line of, of professional organizations and, and even colleges, you know, it, it affects so many people at so many different levels. So, that's one thing I, I can see a big swing in it so far in, in the 30 years I've been doing this, but we're really just on the forefront of that, you know, in showing that, Hey, you know, this is, this is a, this is a very professional and technical industry that we're in and, and it, the pay needs to match that as well. So I agree with you. And the way that I think about it, and I, I still don't understand why people don't think this way. Um, you're investing millions and millions of dollars in these players and you're asking people to work on the surfaces that keep these players playing so that you can make the money to pay those players. But if you're not providing a product where it's not a professional grade, which most stadiums, obviously there are, um, you're not keeping your investment safe. So why would you not invest in the area that needs it most, you know? Um, and I can't agree with you more on all that. Um, I'm going to sort of shift the conversation a little bit. Um, you've been a longtime member of the Sports Turf Managers Association, and you are always at the forefront of every conference that I've been to with your time, uh, dedication, everything. How have you seen uh, the sports turf industry impact your business, and how have you seen it sort of grown? You sort of talked to the fact that you were there when there was less than 100 people in 1995, and I'll be honest, I was born in 1995, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> sort of how have you seen it grow and change over the years? Um, it has grown and changed. Um, there's still a constant though. And that constant is, you know, you just have some really quality people there. Um, you know, when, it's so cool when, when you're able, if you're able, able to go to the national conference and, and it's, and I don't, it's not, you know, they haven't made an official word yet, but I find it very hard to believe that they there will be an in-face conference this January. It's in a yeah, Palm Springs, California. They already changed. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they, Jack Goff is done, and I know, I know that that's probably the decision they're going to make here in the next week or two. Um, to you know, I mean, it's just just difficult. Um, but the next this next year. In, in 22, so it always occurs like the third week of January. And in 2022, which will be a year and a half away, it's in Savannah, Georgia. So, you know, you can make that drive. And um, that would be a cool spot, I think. If you ever have an opportunity to go, there's a lot of op options and opportunities and ways to, you know, 
make that happen uh, if if there's interest. But the people there are so genuine. You know, everybody's willing to help. Um, that was just the thing I saw right off right off the bat. Anybody's available to help in any way possible. Share ideas. You know, make contacts. Learn other people in the industry that can help you meet your peers from other parts of the country and even other parts of the world now. And so the information is, is, is huge. Um, you know, back then, you know, I, I would just love to get their monthly magazine because, you know, again, this is before the internet, that's where I learned so many different things. And, and now the, 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 the tools for learning is just, uh, just expanded. But, um, you know, it was very helpful to me extremely helpful to me to be involved in that organization there's another one now that i've been involved in probably 15 years or so and it's the american sports builders association aspa and uh it's just for field builders you know and that's again a professional organization same type you know objective and mentality uh there's a certification process uh for certified field builders there's also a certification process with certified sports field managers through the STMA. So that's always something to sort of uh, achieve or, or strive towards. But those, those are two great associations. Most of you guys probably couldn't be part of the Field Builders Association, but you could I follow and, and, yeah. But the, the, they have a manual, a, um, a big manual that it, that you can buy. We use some of it. We use some of it for teaching, just to sort of show them like the drainage aspects of the fields and whatnot, and just how yeah. much actually goes into it. You know, so yeah, definitely a great resource. That's a, that's a good tool. Um, but you know, any of those people in that association are like myself, or are usually minded such that you know, willing to help and and, and you know, available to. Uh, try to help guide and make some good decisions when you have construction opportunities or challenges. Uh, and I was actually about to ask you about the field building association. So, um, uh, They're based out of uh, Baltimore, but they're um, a national organization. Uh, they, they're, you know, their, their certification programs probably only about 12 years old. Um, not as, long as uh the scma but still have a pretty good record now um good organization and you know the virginia sports turf manager association north carolina and, and south carolina the carolinas uh scma they have a nice conference down in myrtle beach of course it's been canceled or trying to do something virtually for this year that's another thing in december you know not too far to travel if if you guys if anybody, you know, was up for it, uh, that's a good little sh shorter show, a lot less costly show. Um, but those are all really good, um, you know, places to try to tap into, you know, some people and, and some ideas and, and to learn about this industry. For sure. Um, I follow you on social media, obviously, and I've noticed there's sort of been a trend and there was a recent one about, um, you posted a, a little information about sports turf management in North Carolina and Virginia for the high school level and sort of how to navigate uh, the spring season with COVID having all the sports sort of in that time. Have you seen a growth with, again, you were talking about the avenue of learning from the industry. Have you sort of seen a growth in that aspect and how have you sort of taken it on? Again, listening to that thing was awesome. It was great information that a lot of athletic directors say in our county don't have the background knowledge on and they just aren't aware of it. Have you seen any growth towards that? And would there ever be something where you could come up with something where, again, if it's at the VHSL and a bunch of different things where they, those people who are the ones that are in charge of the fields have a better understanding of how the management practices have an impact. Um, I think there's a great opportunity for that. Um, ironically enough, yesterday I had a zoom call with, I don't remember. I think it was in the 70, 70 some people of uh, ADs and, and, um, 
coaches, I don't know, mostly ADs and through the VH or V, what did you call it? The V, uh, the high, Virginia high school league VHSL, or yep. whatever. It is. I got yeah, you. VHSL. <laughs> so somebody, somebody called me from that or, organization and they had a superintendent out in a county, um, uh, Essex County, you know, Eastern shore, but not out there in the mm-hmm. peninsula on the, whatever, right at the edge, on, yeah. on the West side. Yeah. On the edge out there. So I went and talked with them, but it, it, and, and, and that sort of opened the door. And then I kind of said, look, I'm doing this little podcast or whatever you want to call it, you know, a little commercial. I don't know what, whatever you would call that podcast uh, is right. But, it's perfect. And, and, you know, I just thought, cause we have this, same schedule in North Carolina as you guys do in Virginia high schools where they're pushing everything back to the spring, you know? And so it's a huge, it's a game changer, you know, for how you manage your field. So they had this thing yesterday and, and, and all these ADs are on there and they had a lot of good questions and I'm trying to answer questions that are coming up on the bottom of the screen. I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm not as versed in all, in all the, this as you are or the you know what i see people who do it well i'm just sort of trying to hang on but there is a big need and it's sort of brought to our attention it's like hey carolina green could could do this you know monthly or whatever we could we could host things like that we could try to make it available to people to you know have these discussions and uh you know just it's worth investing the time to do that and uh and it just helps elevate everyone's game, you know, and, and spend the money wisely. Um, maybe more importantly, just bring attention to the fact that these are important things that, you know, are worth the, the effort and the financing to do well uh, from a safety standpoint, from a, you know, uh, it just makes good fiscal sense to take care of these facilities. And when we're, when we're putting people in a situation, you know, they always play football in the fall, right? And who knows? The outcome of this may be that hey, some maybe maybe better to play some of these sports in the spring, you know, or or adjust these schedules somewhat. But um, we had a good call yesterday. They had a lot of really good questions, you know, mm-hmm. mainly about overseeding rye. And I've had several calls today from people who are on that call, so it's definitely something that I think there's a need for, you know. I actually, so I think that if I somehow could pitch it to SDMA, there could be a membership for athletic directors so they're not really sports turf managers but in a sense when they take on a job they realize that oh wow i have to take care of these fields but i have no background in it so sort of like a a idea to have information really available to them sort of help them through all that um but um we're gonna start wrapping it up and i just want to see if you have any words of advice for the kids just sort of entering the world of turf grass or any really any future they have uh any words of wisdom that you could give them um well again i really didn't know i was going to be doing this when i started and 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 it's been a great it's been a great thing for me i really love what what i do um you know i would say some jobs you get into you may have to work for less than you think you're uh you're uh than, than you're worth you know you may have to start at a at a level that you're not real crazy about financially but you know do your best job it's easy to get recognized and 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 sort of uh noticed if you're going over and above if you're being attentive to your work i mean i can't tell you what that's worth for me being an employer you know um, just focusing on the job at hand, even if it seems like a menial job, because it's the little things that are really important, you know, and being on time, showing up, being, and just having a good attitude, even though sometimes it sucks what we're doing. It's hard, but you know, that's the challenge that a lot of people really, you know, enjoy. And, um, and then, and then to see the, the product of your efforts, you know, right there in front of you when you, when you, put on a good surface and, and you really have a great looking field or whatever it is, you know, that's where the payoff is. And, um, um, you know, it's great to be seen on TV with some of our work. That's awesome. But it's also great to go to a high school game and just know that 
you completely turn that field around in you know in a year or a month or two years or whatever so uh, the small things probably make the biggest difference attention to detail taking a job you can learn something from every single job even if you're not getting paid a dime you can learn something and it all adds up to uh really who you are and what you're worth down the road you know it, it, you, you get something out of every every task really well thank you so much we're going to open it up to a couple questions uh so guys if you just want to ask go ahead yeah, what was your... go ahead <laughs> what was your craziest job when it came to weather conditions when installing a field uh, well, I've, I've had several that I couldn't feel my hands or my feet, you know, it's just so cold, um, when you're doing a midnight install or in the pouring rain or things like that. Um, you know, we've tried to, uh, cover the fields to keep them from frosting. Uh, we, we, we've covered the fields to keep the snow off and then have to push snow off the covers to get to it to harvest the grass to send it up the road some crazy things like that you never hope to get involved in i think i think dealing with the cold has been you know harder for me than dealing with the heat um and uh that that is cold fingers and me don't get along even though i'm sort of a big guy uh i'm still a baby when it comes to cold weather time <laughs> don't worry i am too Job, I could not feel my legs, and I was like, how am I even walking right now? <laughs> yeah. I had a question. Um, for your employees and, you know, uh, people that work for you, what are some um, degrees that they have or you require for them to work for you, and are they two-year, four-year degrees, or does it really make a difference? Um, we have a, a wide mix of, of people from a wide mix of, you know, areas uh, and careers or whatever. Um, I, I would say, you know, we have some, uh, definitely some two year turf people and some four year turf people. Um, I can think of four right now in the company, five, I'm sorry, five that have turf degrees. Um, most of them have, uh, since we are primarily a construction company, a lot of them, you know, just have a high school degree and, um, they've worked in the industry somewhere, bricklayers, carpenters, grading contractors, worked on grading crews. Um, you know, my son got a degree in psychology and, uh, I asked him, what are you going to do with that? And he said he was going to read people's minds. And I said, well, you, that may be pretty good then uh, if you can actually do that. But now he's working for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now he's working for us. And, and, you know, I look at that and what he's learned and what, and it, and it all applies, you know, there again, you can, you can learn the craft. You can learn the craft when you're with people who are doing and, and, and applying the craft. Uh, you can learn the agronomics. It definitely has a, is a big advantage to, to, to have that knowledge um but you can also learn it on the job um some you know we have some hispanic um people that work with us and and they're some of the best workers and we have one guy he, he came from cuba you know and he tells tales of stuff to what it was like to live in cuba it's crazy um but, you know, they learn the craft and, and, you know, the common denominator there is working hard, being part of a team, uh, being on time, showing up, do, you know, trying to do your job as best you can and, and being part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And, and if you carry that attitude, hey, I'm looking to hire anybody with that attitude. I don't care if you never got out of the eighth grade, you know, um, that. I, I don't, I'm not trying to play down the importance of education because I could not do this job unless I had gotten that degree from Virginia Tech, no question in my mind. But there's a lot of other things you learn in your formal education, just how to find out answers, you know, 
how to how to deal with problems. That's you know that's what you really learn. That's what I really learned in college: how to figure it out and go get how to get the answers I needed and and problem solving things like that. So just having that mindset about whatever you do um, that that is such a benefit to an employer. Thank you. Next question, Chad. Any other questions? Well, Chad, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, what do you guys say? Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.